Hey listeners, on May 13th, we invite you to join us and Reed Hoffman for a new virtual strategy session presented in alliance with Capital One Business. You'll hear insights from fellow entrepreneurs about how to be at the forefront of leading change with AI. So go to mastersofscale.com AI strategy right now to register for free. Again, that's mastersofscale.com AI strategy. Looking forward to seeing you there. of the navigator is to see as far into the future as you can to make decisions that are going to protect your crew and your vessel and to make sure you're going on the right path. That's Lahua Kamalu, a navigator who captained an epic journey around the world in a traditional Polynesian double-hulled canoe. And if Lahua's voice sounds particularly resonant, it's because she's speaking from the stage at our very first Master of Scale Live, recorded in Boston this July. Lahua's story opened the evening's event, and the music you'll hear was performed live from stage. I'll let Lahua tell the story from here. We set sail from Tahiti to Hawaii on a Polynesian double-hulled canoe, designed like the ones my ancestors sailed. We'll travel for 2,500 miles and 17 days, a journey over open ocean so long and technically challenging that historians didn't believe my ancestors could have sailed it. My crew and I sail the way our ancestors did. And every time we sail this route, we prove yet again what our ancestors were capable of. We don't use modern instruments, not even a compass. sail from Tahiti in May 2017. The first seven days go by fast. We're banking time knowing the most unpredictable waters lie ahead. Seven days into our journey, we hit the doldrums, the flat calm that you can find at the equator. The wind and the water are completely still. Clouds cover the stars. When you're in the doldrums, it's easy to lose faith. There are stretches of hours and even days when almost nothing happens. And we have to be patient. But it isn't a lazy patience. It's a vigilant, watchful patience. You're always looking for the signs. If you miss them, you can find yourself lost at sea. On the eighth day of our trip and second day in the doldrums, 
the weather starts fluctuating. And a layer of clouds so thick that the sun can't shine through at all. It's pitch black. You can't even see the waves, but you can feel them. What we're getting is just wall after wall after wall after wall of water. I feel the force of each wave as it punches the side of our canoe. It's like boom, boom, boom. You're in this rhythmic pounding. For five days, we have these super intense waves and total darkness. So we look and we wait, and we look and we wait, knowing that the sign will only be there for a moment, and we have to be ready to move. Finally, on that fifth day of darkness, the sun was able to penetrate the clouds for just a moment with this diffuse, intense red light, which we started calling the dragon eye. It's the most blood red sunset I've ever seen. It's a sign, and I know what it's telling me. I know exactly where the setting sun touches down. I can take stock of my entire horizon, of the wind and the ocean and the waves as they relate to this sign. Everyone is really excited now because they know I've been looking for this. We've all been looking for this. So when I spot that unforgettable sunset, I realize I've gone a little too far west. I instantly correct course. I hone in on my target to get to the latitude of Hawaii on the east side of the Big Island. I'm confident now, and I'm getting continuous signals that I'm on the right path. We've held patiently in these uncertain waters, holding our ground. But now, it's time for speed. That was Lehua Kamalu, the first woman to serve as both captain and lead navigator for the Polynesian Voyaging Society. The trip she just described was the last leg of a voyage circumnavigating the globe. Lehua's story is a perfect metaphor for leadership. Great captains and great CEOs both know you can't move fast every minute of the journey. If you're going to go the distance, you have to recognize that the conditions around you are always changing. You have to be strategically patient, but that doesn't mean sitting back and waiting. It means leaning in and watching for the moment to break out and move fast. I believe that to scale a sustainable business, you need to combine patience, 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 and move with explosive speed. You gotta have incredible talent at every position. It's like this.
huge push. There are fires burning when you're going home. Can you believe it? Such an idiot. And then you go back to, this is totally going to be amazing. There are so many easy ways. I'm supposed to know I have no idea what to do. Sorry, we made a mistake. But you have to time it right. Oops. Working at a three-bedroom apartment. Stuff that just seems absolutely nutballs. Ten years later, I'm like, well, that's just how you do it. This is Masters of Scale. Hi, listeners. It's Erica Flynn, VP of Alliances and Audience Development at Wait What, the company behind Masters of Scale. My day-to-day consists of nonstop communication, not only with my immediate team, but with our current partner relationships and with incoming leads from possible future partners which is why I rely on the ease of Grammarly to keep my communication clear and efficient. One confusing email can turn into several confused replies, which can turn into an unexpected meeting which no one wants, needs, or has time for. Having Grammarly on hand as my trusted AI writing partner not only streamlines my extensive to-do list, it minimizes miscommunication by quickly and efficiently synthesizing information and carefully curating tailor-made responses to specific groups. In fact, companies that use Grammarly to communicate can save 19 days per year per employee. Grammarly eases the writing process. It's a writing partner from the blank page to the last word typed before hitting send. Join me and over 70,000 teams who trust Grammarly to work faster, hit their goals, and keep their data secure. Visit Grammarly.com to learn more. That's Grammarly.com. I'm Reid Hoffman. (laughs) Founder of LinkedIn, partner at Greylock and your host for the very first evening of Masters of Scale Live here in Boston. On each episode of the podcast, I set out to prove a theory about how businesses scale. Tonight will be no different. Over the course of the evening, I'll try to prove the theory that in order to scale a sustainable business, you have to combine patience Patience, patience, and also explosive speed. If you listen to the podcast, you know that I'm a big believer in what I call blitz scaling, moving with explosive speed to capture a market. So you may be surprised to hear me champion patience, but patience doesn't mean slowness. Patience means choosing the moment. You've got to choose your moment. Choose it now, choose it now, choose your moment, choose it now. Okay, okay, guys, that's good. Got it. Okay, Reed, I guess the moment is not right now. (laughs) (laughs) To imagine the kind of strategic patience I'm talking about, picture a great blue heron. You know, those stately birds with impossibly long legs and beaks. A heron will stand perfectly still in a marsh. It might appear to be quite lazy. That is, until it spots a fish. Then it strikes with incredible speed and precision. Because we're in the room together, I can show you what I mean. Sorry to break in again. I have to explain what the audience is seeing here. So on stage, there's a video playing. A heron, this fish-eating bird with long legs and an S-shaped neck, just standing in the water. It could almost be a still image, 
except for the barely noticeable ripples in the water. The bird is patiently waiting to strike its prey, and waiting, and waiting. Imagine this patience. The heron slowly stalking its prey and then striking is a living embodiment of strategic patience that pays off. And there we go. You can watch the video for yourself at mastersofscale.com. This kind of patience isn't lazy. It isn't about moving slowly. It's about watching carefully for your moment, then moving with certainty and speed when the time is right. I wanted to talk to Tori Birch about this because she built a billion-dollar business from the ground up by speeding forward when others might have hit pause and showing watchful patience when others may have gone full tilt or worse, given up. What strikes me most about Tori is that from day one, her business plan centered on building a foundation to help women. The company would exist to support the foundation, not the other way around. The idea was ahead of its time, and as you'll hear throughout her story, that's where strategic patience comes in. With that, let's go back to the live recording. Before we welcome Tori to the stage, I should add one more thing. Those of you who listen to Master of Scale are probably used to what I call my podcast voice. But actually, I talk like this. And when I move over to the interview chairs, you'll hear the real Reed voice, right? But right now, I'm behind the mic. <laughs> so, podcast voice it is. And with that, please welcome to the stage the wonderful Tori Birch. I am so pleased that you could join us. I'm so happy to be here. We've been trying to do this for so long. Yes, exactly. And of course, not New York, not Silicon Valley, here in Boston. In Boston. (laughs) (laughs) So let's start with your childhood. Your brother describes your childhood as Huck Finn meets Andy Warhol. Uh, that's tell, true. Tell me what that looked like. <laughs> There's perception and reality. And I think people have this vision of how I grew up, and it's the opposite of how I grew up. I grew up on a farm in the middle of nowhere with three brothers, and we spent our entire time outside. And we, our parents would travel and leave us at home. So we were left to our own devices a, a lot, and we had the best time. We were very into sports, and as I said, it was in the middle of nowhere, so we really had to make do, and we didn't have a lot of friends around. So uh, that sounds like the Huck Finn part. Yes. Where does the Andy Warhol well, the, come so in? So the Andy Warhol must be that my parents would have all of these, we always said random people to dinner, we never would know who. So it could be the plumber, it could be a poet, it could be an artist, and it was always insightful. We were always intellectually curious to understand uh, all different kinds of people, and it was always about inclusivity and accepting um, people from all kinds of places. Now, I was surprised when we were prepping for the interview, but is it true that you had very little interest in fashion until your teens? That what, what sparked the interest? I had no interest. I, I didn't put on a dress until, I think, junior year for a prom, and I was a total tomboy. Um, so, no, I had no interest in fashion, and that's true. 
So another thing that surprised me to learn is that you were apparently quite a prankster. And this started early. I hear there was one particularly epic prank you played on your brother. Would you tell us that story? No, Help so us there's picture. so many, but I, my, one of my brothers, I had three, I have three, and he would come out Christmas morning and be so pleased because he would have more presents than any of us. So I spent a good portion of the night before um, wrapping anything I could find around the house. So uh, blenders, rocks, and he came down and he was so happy until he started unwrapping. Uh, and it's still to this day quite humorous. But. <laughs> have you ever given her another wrapped rock? No. But I will. That's a good idea. Pet rock. Yes, exactly. So apparently, you also got your first job in fashion by cold calling. And how was cold calling a way to essentially punch above your weight? First of all, I'm always out of my comfort zone. So cold calling is is definitely an example of that. And my mother used to say, what's the worst that can happen? They can say no. And, And they often did. But I called a designer to get a job in fashion. I wasn't really even interested in fashion. I was just trying to get a job to move to New York after I graduated from Penn. And I called him and he said, you can start, but it has to be next week. And I was graduating on Friday, moved to New York and started a job on Monday. Wow. Usually I actually recommend because of LinkedIn that people get a warm introduction. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) But you may be the enormously successful exception that proves the rule. I think he just needed the help, to be honest. He was desperate and I was was available. (laughs) Well, but, you know, it worked out. So you describe yourself as a shy person. Did that make it unusual to do the cold calling and then later go into this entire world of entrepreneurship? Because, you know... um, Usually people don't think entrepreneurs are shy. Yeah, I mean, it's been incredibly hard, actually. I'm incredibly (laughs) shy. I've had to be out of my comfort zone, and I had to push myself. And when you think about starting, after I decided I wanted to start a company to build a foundation, that was my business plan, my parents said, you have to buckle up and thicken your skin. Negativity is noise, and, and, and because they knew that I was shy and also took things to heart. And I think when you're a sensitive person and you go into a business in fashion, or any business for that matter, you have to be ready to go through some challenges. Because this is the podcast version of the live interview, I get to rewind. And I want to make sure you caught what Tori just said. I wanted to start a company to build a foundation. That was my business plan. It's true. Tori's original business plan centered not just on a fashion line, but on a nonprofit she wanted to build to help women. It was a radical idea ahead of its time. And so the idea for the foundation would have to wait patiently until the time was right. But Tori moved forward with speed on her idea for the business. This is one of those key entrepreneurial junctures. When did you know I wanted to start a company? What was the kind of motives and the drive for that? I had a great career, and I was offered a wonderful job and found out I was pregnant with my third son. And I had three boys under the age of four, and I realized that I would not be able to do both well. So I had to make one of those tough decisions that women often have to make, and I gave up the career and became a stay-at-home mom. But knowing that I really wanted to go back into the workforce. So when I became a stay-at-home mom, it was for four years, and I knew that I wanted to build some company, and I had so many ideas, and I was so tired of hearing myself 
talk about things that never came to fruition. And then I decided I wanted to start this idea of a company that to design beautiful things that didn't cost a fortune. And it was because I was missing something in the market, but that I also knew that I wanted to start a foundation for women and I didn't have the money to do that. So I had to build a company in order to do that. You sort of reference that, but it was quite true, but knowing that it would take a great time. So I had this idea and then 9-11 happened and we were in New York and I thought, wow, this is just not the right time and um, put it on hold. And then I became addicted to watching CNN after 9-11 and there was this commercial of a little cartoon figure about a startup and follow your dreams and build a business. And it, every time I turned on CNN, it would come on. It, and it was like clockwork. And so it really, eight months after 9-11 is when I said, okay, I'm going to really do this. And um, I had an idea, I had a concept and did it pretty much differently than everything I was advised. And, well, yes, let's go through that a little bit, because one of the things was, you know, that you were doing the company in part to start a foundation. Did you tell that to your prospective investors? So I did, yes. and I went to raise money, and I was basically laughed at and told never to say business and social responsibility in the same sentence. And it was almost as if I was, um, you know, they were looking at me as the lady who wanted to do, or a young person who wanted to do charity work. And it was uh, made me a bit more determined. Um, and it was quite funny, actually. Last Christmas, that same investor, I called him and I said, hey, I just came from this great conference. And the, the, it was doing good is good for business. I think it was Fortune and Forbes. And he said, what do you want? <laughs> I, said, <laughs> I said, I just remember that conversation 15 years ago on your couch. I want to check for the foundation, naturally. <laughs> and he said, OK, one time check. And I said, OK, well, I'll call you next December. That's <laughs> <laughs> yes, exactly. That's but awesome. I was constantly told that, Reid. Yep. No, I, I can see how investors would do it. Because as you know, as a super successful entrepreneur, Focus, focus, focus yeah. is usually the thing. And you say, well, I'm focusing on this in order to get the foundation. But I think it's exactly right. I mean, building a brand, having aspiration, you know, you've pioneered but the for most many important thing to that point is I never realized how good it would be for the bottom line. Mm-hmm. And, and that is something that investors can relate to. One thing I want you to notice about Tori is the way she responded when an investor told her she was wrong about the foundation. Uh, made me a bit more determined. <laughs> That determination is key for any patient strategy because things that require patience usually involve a lot of people telling you you're wrong. And a lot of people would tell Tori she's wrong. You'll hear it over and over as she builds her business with speed. And it started with that search for her first investors. So I had found an investor. I was lucky because I did have a network that I could reach out to, but we didn't raise that much money. We um, had one investor and I reached out to 150 friends and family. And I said, put in what you're going to lose because I was terrified of losing people's money. (laughs) And so some people put in $10,000, some people put in $2,000 and we raised, I think it was $8 million. And that's all we've raised in the beginning. Yeah, that's one more of an unconventional story. Because usually when you're pitching investors, the answer is you're going to make a lot of money with this, not put in what you're going to lose. I was really, I mean, I still don't love taking people's money, but yes. that was, um, and, and it was it was great because some people, it really transformed their life. So, so another small investment. difference from kind of traditional entrepreneurship within kind of consumer and fashion is you you went direct to consumers and opened your own store on day one. Say a little bit about why that's also like unusual and also then why you did it. 
You know, I, I mean, 15 years ago is very unusual, and I was advised not to do that. I was really interested in direct-to-consumer and more of a retail concept, and I had this idea of a lifestyle brand, and back then it wasn't an overused term. And I think when you go direct-to-consumer, you can control your own destiny. You can really uh, make sure that people aren't cherry-picking how they buy your line. So we went to a street in the middle, uh, downtown New York. It, there was nothing on Elizabeth Street. It was a Chinese furniture store, and it, the rent was very inexpensive. And we opened a shop <laughs> there, and it was 12 categories. I spent eight months researching going to Asia. I set up a supply chain in Asia from day one. So I knew that if we were going to reach that price point that we needed to be great at sourcing. So I, we, we learned on the job, really. Surrounded myself with great people, as, as you say often happens. Yes, I know. It's a critical part of these journeys. How did you uh, start getting people like aware of it? Right, Because you're, you go open, because cost is super important, you open in an unusual area of town in a place that people weren't previously doing foot traffic, and then you have to bring people in. So it was during Fashion Week, and we had an event, and I had grown up in fashion because I worked at Vera Wang and Ralph Lauren and LVMH, and, and I said, we're going to have this event. It's going to be start at 10 in the morning to 6 at night. We're going to invite friends, family, out-of-town press, press. I had no idea if anyone would even come. It was really far downtown. It was in Tribeca. And we opened the store without the doors, actually. They didn't arrive. That's right. Tori literally opened the doors of her business before the actual doors arrived. She knew she had a moment in time during Fashion Week when she could capture attention. And if she hesitated, it might be gone forever. Listen in her story for the explosive speed she applied in opening the store and what follows. And we opened the store without the doors, actually. They didn't arrive. And um, it was very cold out. It was February. And we worked. I have three stepdaughters. We worked through the night. And I had my brothers drive out to Southampton to grab pillows because we didn't, the pillows didn't come. And then we opened the doors. And at 10 till 6, it was amazing. I mean, it was almost as if we were giving the product away. So we kind of realized that we were onto something. And and as I said, it was this white space in a market that we had touched that I was missing. And and hopefully, well, I realized that other people were missing it as well. And which hour in that day did you know? Was the first hour? Was was it like, oh my gosh? No, it was probably when I started seeing people changing in the middle of the store and watching my one of my best <laughs> friends like becoming helping with as a salesperson, and it just was we we couldn't keep up, and we we sold through most of our inventory, so we had to uh, figure out that we weren't whizzes at retail, and we had to learn what that meant. <laughs> and what would you have? Uh, wish that you had known at that moment? Was it like inventory management? Was it... I'm still learning inventory (laughs) management. Yes, it's very difficult. Yes, inventory management and... um, it has been such a learning curve. And as someone that didn't have design experience and I never went to business school, to be on this journey has been just such an honor, but has been excruciatingly hard as well. Well, you don't know this, but one of the things actually when I give talks at business schools that I say is the two negative factors that need to be explained away for me to invest. One is an MBA, and the other one <laughs> is a background in management consulting. Okay, so that, like, the entrepreneurial bias is like, just go do it exactly as you've done. So let's shift to the Oprah moment. Yes. When you first received the call from Oprah's producer about coming on the show, 
Had you had any inkling it was coming? I had no idea, and I thought my brothers were playing a joke on me. So <laughs> it was, I'll never forget because it was spring break, and we were going away, and a friend in PR sent over our clothes for Christmas. Mm. And so they called and said, we're doing the next big thing. And I said, great, just count me in, thinking it was one of my brothers. So it turned out it wasn't a joke, and they were doing the next big thing on fashion. And I went to Chicago, and we filmed a fashion show on real people. We had to figure out, we didn't have size runs at the time. We were using samples and we had to figure out how to make things on the spot. But I'd never been on TV. I'd never been in an interview and, and Oprah looked at me and she said, don't worry, it's only 30 million people. I was like, oh great, thank you. That's very comforting. Just, just stay chill. Okay. And so, so that transformed our, I, it was the first year of business and luckily we launched with e-commerce 15 years ago and that was something else people told me that no one would ever buy online. And so that um, Oprah's team um, said to back up our website and we had 8 million hits on our website. Uh, and did it stay up? It stayed up. Uh, I'm not exactly sure yes, how and it yes. wasn't because of my... <laughs> oh, but that was in, 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 in those early days of these things, the yeah, normal thing was... Yes. 2005. Yes. We launched it, in 2004. There was a tendency for things to go down when right. Oprah would we go... We just assumed it would yes, go down. Yes. <laughs> yes. And... Um, once you had that Oprah opportunity, because remember, part of what we're showing here for entrepreneurs is patience first, yeah. then grab the opportunity. Yeah. So what was that experience? And then what was the thing of going, oh, my God, this could change the trajectory? We already have a great one, but it can even be great. I think I was so in the moment that I wasn't thinking about this is changing the trajectory as much as it was changing the trajectory. And that's something that we had a business plan and it said we would open five stores. Maybe it was five stores in five years and it ended up being 17. Yeah. Three stores in five years. Oh, three, uh, thank you. Yes. <laughs> you know better than I. <laughs> yes. Three stores in five years and it ended up being 17. And we were trying to keep up with demand. We we were doing trunk shows. I was having friends host events and, and building it that way I was obsessed with the Avon model and, and the idea of how do we build in a grassroots way. We didn't have budgets at all, so we had to be incredibly scrappy. In a way, our customer has helped us build our brand over the years, and certainly my friends have been a big part of that. And we would have an event, a trunk show at a friend's house in Atlanta, and then we'd see if there was traction, and would that be a great place to open a retail store? And uh, then we'd start to study the website as best we could, which data wasn't as easy <laughs> then as it is now. Exactly. No, no, it's a lot of technical revolution. On these trunk shows, would you, if there were an aspiring entrepreneurs that were thinking about doing a similar pattern, like saying, okay, I'm going to go and kind of do a combination of e-commerce, a combination of, of market study, would you recommend to do that path again? I would definitely recommend to do direct-to-consumer yeah. and e-commerce <laughs> now more than ever. Yes, exactly. <laughs> so when did you start thinking about laying down the cultural values of the company? So the values came from the first day. I think working in our industry, one of the things that struck me is that women have a more difficult time. Um, I was taught that you treat everyone the same, whether it's a cab driver or the Queen of England, if you're ever to meet the Queen of England. And I feel that you get the best work when you have a great environment and you're creating a place that people want to come that's inspiring. It's about excellence, but it's also about being transparent and straightforward and have a healthy environment. We named it after my dad, which is kind of funny. He would have loved that. Um, he's very sarcastic and he had a very dry sense of humor. So in a way, having our culture named after him 
would be just up his alley. And what was the name? Um, buddy. <laughs> so, <laughs> so when you describe it to a new employee, they have buddy values. Do they know that's actually after your dad, or do they assume they, something they else? They learn it, and I have to say, it's not for everyone. And when you have a culture that is paramount and so important, if someone is not a cultural fit, it becomes very clear very quickly. And how do you interview for them? How do you bring people on, onboard people with them? I think interviewing is something I've learned is just such a crucial thing. And sometimes when you're desperate to fill a role, you make the wrong decisions, and then you realize it takes forever, and it's so much more expensive to get out of that decision. So we're very careful with that. We obviously talk about the values, but we also have people who have been with me for 10 years or more, and, that, and, and a lot of people have. Yeah, no, exactly. And I so- say it's Hotel California. <laughs> Check in and never leave. Yes, I... I presume most people are of an age, they, they catch the reference, but never quite know. I'm dating both of us. <laughs> but, <well>, yes. <laughs> the Eagles. <laughs> yes, exactly. Um, but one of the things that I've discovered in doing a lot of these Master of Scale interviews is that defining that culture early is so important because when you're scaling and you're going really fast, you need everyone to be living the culture. You need everyone to be onboarding and bringing that culture in. And so it's, it's been actually, in fact, a constant theme throughout all the interviews. So like, for example, one thing, you know, Reed Hastings, famously known for doing the Netflix deck. Have you guys written it down? Have you... Do we you, have written it down. Yes. We have a pamphlet. I have it in my wallet. Yep. It's actually what you said. Everyone has to live it. And it can't just be coming from the top down. Yes. It has to come from the bottom, top, all over. And I say to the team, we're all responsible for the culture because it can change in a minute. And it often does. And you have to constantly dial it back and remind people what the culture is. And For sure. I mean, one of the things that I did at LinkedIn... Um, is I put the six values that we have on most of the conference rooms that I would be in and also my office. Because what I wanted to do is I wanted to make sure that an employee, anyone, would feel comfortable challenging me. Yeah. Like they said, like, members first was the very first one. And they'd say, why is that there? Like, and I was like, well, because if you hear me ever doing anything that See, you... See, I want that professional yes. courage. Right? Yes, exactly. <laughs> I'm not sure. Do, does that happen? Because for me, it's it's hard to get... I really want that, and you don't want people to yes you, and, and we're working on that. What I try to do is I try to get someone to model it in a meeting. Yeah. Right? So I say, here, I'm going to say this, and you're going to challenge me on it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so you're setting them yeah. up. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, but so other people can see it, yeah. right? Because if you do that, then they go, oh, that's okay. He doesn't really get angry. No, God, no. You know? I would never get angry. <laughs> yeah. No, exactly. No. It's they so really... important. It's such an important part of, of growth and, and moving things forward. Hey, listeners, it's Jodine Dorsey, the VP of Live Events at Wait What, the company behind Masters of Scale. I am constantly tasked with reaching out to teams across a wide spectrum of professions and the vastly different personalities that go with them. Grammarly helps me quickly shift tones to better communicate what I want to say and saves me valuable time in the process. Our upcoming Masters of Scale Summit event features top-tier speakers from CEOs to founders to political leaders. 
Grammarly's ability to produce on-brand writing helps me properly prepare for each and every thought leader I interact with on stage. It lets me generate the most exciting specialized content for our audience. In fact, teams that use Grammarly report 66% less time spent editing marketing content, which I've seen firsthand with my Summit team. Join me and over 70,000 teams who trust Grammarly to work faster, hit their goals, and keep their data secure. Visit Grammarly.com to learn more. That's Grammarly.com. Tori applied explosive speed to capture opportunity after opportunity. But she also has the courage to say no to quick wins when they don't serve her long-term goals. This is where strategic patience comes in. Listen as this theme about patience comes up again and again from Tori's entry into China to her departure from certain department stores. And so you also took your time before launching the brand in China. Why was that? We never want to be the company that goes in with a bang. We always want to learn our markets and be respectful and understand cultures. And we've been very careful that way. And often we go into a market and we'll partner with someone from that market. And then we'll have a clawback of three years and take back our business or not. Mm -hmm. And China was so daunting. And being an American brand, it's daunting anyway to think about business globally. And, and certainly American brands don't resonate in certain places. And we're proud to be an American brand, but women globally are what inspire me. So mm. we definitely look to other countries for inspiration. China was a place that just seemed like the Wild West and, mm. and still is. And, and we just wanted to be careful. I just think it was almost like Brazil. Everyone started talking about Brazil. Everyone went in, including us, not in the best way, and realized we had to pull back and get a partner in Brazil to make the business okay. China, we, I wanted to wait and see. Uh-huh. And, and how did, how is the China story gone? It's super exciting. I I think we now have 30 stores in China, and it's just the start of what could be. We launched on Tmall last week, and that's super exciting. So we're doing it, as you said, in a slow way for industry standards, for sure. And so, for example, you've held back on opening more outlets in some context. What What's that impulse? What's that thinking? Yeah, it's funny. I had lunch um, yesterday with a journalist, and she said, you're known for protecting your brand where, uh, to the point where it's, it must be annoying to your investors. And I said, <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I think we've had those tough discussions, and certainly the outlet business is like a drug. It's a very easy fix, but it's not a long-term solution. So everyone needs to have an outlet business in our industry, but to me, it's not a business strategy. And we need to do it in... in a careful way and we want to protect our full price selling but use the outlet as I feel it should be used. That's very different from what a lot of people are thinking but I think it can be very dilutive to your company. And similarly at one point you pulled your line out of major department store. Yes, we do that every yeah. now and then. Yeah. We, and, and why? That, <laughs> we, that's usually not what investors are thinking, the, I know. the business is and, running. And, you know, I think, and I was thinking about it earlier, women, and or at least, no offense to men, but the women I know in business have a long-term view, and, and they're always thinking about each thing that they're doing and how it affects five and ten years out. And and wholesale, as you know, is, is rethinking wholesale at the moment. They used to be in charge, and now the customer is in charge, and brands to a certain extent. So... When you're not treated in the, in the way that you think your company should be treated with the right assortments, the right adjacencies, if they put it on sale before you're ready to, and you can't have that conversation. Yeah. You just have to move on and then go in in a more inspiring way. 
That makes total Which sense. Which we are doing. One of the things you probably noticed as Tori speaks is the conviction she has in what she's building and her clarity about what matters to her. That clarity is essential to making any patient strategy work. You have to know what you're building and what you're waiting for. And that's why I want you to hear this story from Rana Al-Kaliubi. Rana is the co-founder and CEO of Affectiva, an AI company whose software can read your face and know what you're feeling. Here is Rana. Hi, everyone. So the first thing I want you to know about my story is that I'm on a mission to humanize technology by building artificial emotional intelligence into our devices and our interfaces. You see, as AI systems become more mainstream and as AI continues to take on more roles that were traditionally done by humans, it's not enough for AI to have lots and lots of IQ, cognitive intelligence. It really needs EQ, emotional intelligence, empathy. When you think about human communication, only 7% of how we communicate with one another is in the actual choice of words we use. 93% is nonverbal. It's all about facial expressions, vocal intonations, gestures. And today, in our digital universe, all of that nonverbal communication disappears into cyberspace. So we're trying to capture that by using machine learning, deep learning, and tons of data to build algorithms that can understand and capture these nonverbal signals. So Rana's AI technology reads your facial expression, and based upon the teeny muscles around your smiling eyes or your furrowed brow, the AI knows how you feel. And if that leaves you feeling curious, but also uneasy, you're not wrong. Listen on. There are many, many, many applications of this technology. There's applications in mental health, facial and vocal biomarkers of depression and Parkinson's. There's applications in automotive to make our roads safer, in education to democratize access to learning, and many, many more. But I'm not naive. In the wrong hands, this technology can be quite abusive and can be used to discriminate against all sorts of people, including minority groups. So when we spun out of MIT 10 years ago, my co-founder, Professor Rosalind Picard, who heads up the Affective Computing Group at MIT Media Lab, and myself and our first employee, we sat around her kitchen table and we said, OK, we recognize that there are so many applications of this technology. Where are we going to draw the line? And we wanted to only play in industries where consent was quite explicit, where people understood how this data was going to be used, and there was this kind of transparency about the technology. And so we were very clear about, very early on actually, where and where we weren't going to play as a young company. But we got tested on it. So two years later, in 2011, we were literally a couple of months away from running out of funding, and we got approached by the venture arm of an intelligence agency, and they said, we're going to give you $40 million of funding, which for us was a lot of money at the time. And they said, on condition that you pivot the company to security and surveillance and lie detection. And it was a very hard decision because, on the one hand, we could take this money and it, you know, we would continue to exist. And I remember going home one night and just kind of playing it out. It just did not feel right for us. So we turned them down. We turned them down. Um, luckily, we're still around today, so luckily we were able to raise funding from investors that shared both our vision and our core values. 
And so this really became a foundational story for us, a, a story of strategic patience, and knowing who we are and what we stand for. I like to say we're an AI company, but we put the human before the artificial. Thank you. What Rana's story demonstrates so clearly is the strategic patience you need to turn down opportunities that aren't right, even when they're tempting. And Rana and her co-founder were smart to sit down and agree from the beginning on their mission and standards. It's a model everyone should follow. Why? Well, first of all, it's almost universally true that a successful company will have to turn down tempting offers of investment and acquisition along the way. And second, it gives you the standards by which to make key decisions at the most difficult moments. At the center of any patient strategy is this courage to say no when the timing or chemistry isn't right and the certainty to say yes when it's right. Not a tentative yes, but a definitive go after it with all you've got, yes. But how do you know for sure when it's the moment? That's where Tori and I went next. I was reflecting on the discussion we just had, and I realized that you do have these two different speeds. Like one of it is like, okay, we're not doing, you know, just a few outlets. We're going to do 17. Here we go. We've got it ready. We're doing these trunk shows, etc. On the other hand, it's like, well, okay, let's let's risk assess China. Uh, uh, let's pull back from the department stores. Was that natural and instinct? Or learned? It's funny. I mean, I do think there, I'm a Gemini. So I do think there's a bit of a, a, a war going on inside of yes and no. But um, I also have um, my brother, Robert, who uh, keeps me in line a bit. He's, I'm more the risk taker. He's a very measured in-house legal and is always dialing me back. I'm definitely a risk taker by nature. That said, I um, don't want to take ridiculous risk. And so we want to take smart risk. And um, it's that tension that is so important of, of knowing when it's the right time. I don't think you ever really know until it happens and you really do it. But I often say um, we, we never mind if we wait because we generally don't miss something from like opening a store. We can really do that at once we assess whether it would be a great business or not. So, But it depends on what because timing is everything. So you can't wait on certain things. And you have to know that. And we, we often are too early for some things. Uh-huh. Well, and, and by the way, if you're not taking some risk, you're not, you're not being aggressive enough. But what are the signs that you use? How do you, is, it, is, it, is it talking to people as a gut? Because when we listen to Lehua's story, yeah. you're right, it's the waves and it's, yeah. the, and it's the sun and it's the position. What are those signs for you? Well, I definitely am an information gatherer. There's no question. But then I generally, when I don't go with my gut is when I regret it. And your business has a cycle when it tells you also certain things that you need to do. And and we had this rapid growth for 10 years. And every person, probably every person like you, told me there would be an inflection point of 10 years of business. And like clockwork, it happened. I mean, it was... <laughs> It was literally like clockwork, and I realized 
realized that at 10 years, we had to look at the next phase and we weren't set up to do that. So it was like steering this giant ship uh-huh. of looking at our management team, thinking about, do we have the right team to take us into the future? Do we, uh, looking at product, how do we perfect product? How, less is more less of everything and we wanted to do less product but product that was more inspiring it's been a journey particularly the last five years it's been and, and what very were the, hard what were the steps that you took at that 10-year moment was that a like taking your exec team and doing an offsite and and saying look we we now need hiring, to change the game bcg or mckinsey we, we did all of that and that really interestingly we've gone a very different way uh-huh. and the company no offense to bcg or mckinsey well, look actually sometimes the, the mirror or the foil is like oh yeah not that this yeah. <laughs> but, it um, definitely makes you have the conversation yes in those times, how do you know how to listen to your gut the right way? How do you? How do you? I, I don't think you always know. And I think yeah. when you realize you made a mistake, I think being agile is the most important thing you can do, and quickly recovering. And I always think of grace under pressure because if you're frenetic and and you have drama at the top, then your whole company feels that, and so do your children. So I really try to be calm. For some reason, <laughs> when things get frenetic, I get more focused. But I don't think you ever really know until you take the plunge and really do it. Particularly in our business, as you said early on, the macro is changing at lightning speed. Tori's company also grew with lightning speed. It now brings in more than a billion and a half in annual sales. But what about her original idea for a foundation and a company living side by side? It took five years before she launched the foundation and 10 more years before she was ready to fully publicly integrate the two. That moment came just three months before our interview in an email she sent to her entire staff. Finally, it was the moment for speed. So all in the foundation, three months ago, you sent an email. Why did you send that email? What were you What were you thinking? What were you shifting towards? So we, as I said, launched the company um, with a business plan that was to start a foundation for women. And we started the company in 2004 and the foundation in 2009. And it took me 10 years to send an email to our team saying that we finally have impact and scale and we are changing women's lives and we are ready to start messaging externally about the foundation in a significant way. And how do we integrate the two in a much more uh, meaningful way where our customer really associates us with changing women's lives. And by the way, we need men to be part of that conversation. And that's something that we, we don't want it to be a women's issue. We go to these conferences and we all agree women have a tougher time getting loans. There's so many things that we all agree on, but we need to all make the progress together. But I sent that to the team and it was very exciting. It's now we have given out over $50 million with Bank of America. They've just increased it to a hundred million, which is very exciting. Thank you. Awesome. <laughs> Thank you. They're, they're, um, yeah, so they're great partners. And, and to have them as a partner and identify entrepreneurs in the United States it has been very gratifying. We're averaging a million a month with them. And we have a fellowship program where we have 50 entrepreneurs come in for a week of, you'd be the perfect person <laughs> for them to meet, of, of learning. <laughs> <laughs> 
um, they're in awe, and they would be in awe of you. And just meeting them is inspiring. They're often single mothers. They often have two jobs. They have incredible businesses. And when we see them reach a million mark, we see sustainability, and we see really traction in their business. There's a particular story that's related to the gift that we've yes. put on everyone's. Can you tell people that story? Uh, there's a chocolate company, Coco Andre, mm -hmm. and it's a mother-daughter. They decided they needed, after they were both let go on the same day, they were going to start a company. They're from Dallas. They started an incredible chocolate company. They have changed their neighborhood. They are now a hub for women to go and meet or anyone. It's doing incredibly well. They're going into Whole Foods. They're going to be chocolate in American Airlines. So we see real potential with this business. And you want to say? Yes, exactly. <laughs> I think the moment is to open your gift. <laughs> so everyone, you should take this you're on your seat a box that looks like this. Podcast listeners, I'm sorry I can't hand you this gift. It was a small box marked do not open until we say so. And inside was a chocolate from Coco Andre. They're one of the women-led companies who won investment and mentorship from the Tory Birch Foundation. You can find them for yourself at cocoandre.com. And now, back to the room. Thank you, and enjoy the chocolate. So going back to supporting women entrepreneurs, what are some of the lessons that you've learned in how to best support women entrepreneurs? Because as you mentioned, it isn't just for women to do. We both have to be doing this. It's super important. No, I mean, listen, I think, first of all, women are an important part of a business equation, of a successful business, and they think differently. Let's just state that. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> I just, I think it's time that women's equality should not even be a discussion. It should be a given. And that's how I look at it. And I just, thank you. I, 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 well, there's so many ways that I think we can help. And certainly our foundation is tackling things like ambition. And when you think about ambition and it being applied to a woman versus a man, it's a negative. And when I first started, there was an article in the New York Times and the journalist looked at me and he said, are you ambitious? And I was like, wow, that's such a rude question. <laughs> and so then my friend called me after, and this was 15 years ago, and she said, nice article, but you shied away from the word ambition. And that's something we have to change. I, from that moment on, decided that we need to really take that, You're 100 take the right. negative um, connotation away from the word ambition and women. Yeah. Um, so we did a PSA, a public service announcement, and it ended up reaching 192 countries. And that's something that we will continue to message. Yeah, one of the things that I completely agree on this is that one of the things you frequently find, and this is like Sheryl Sandberg's Lean In and everything else is, you say uh, to women, it's like, are you ready yet for this? And they go, no, no i got to prep more. And it's like, no, no, go. Men are always ready. <laughs> yes, I know. It's like, I'm, I'm totally unqualified. You should pick me. Right. I mean, women, but it is true. No offense. I, yes. Women need to be better advocates for themselves. They need to, and we try to help, and I'm, I'm guilty. I, was, I bought into that negative stereotype, and I definitely have confidence issues, and I think that's something that when women need, we all need to build women's confidence, and they need to build their own. And so what are the things that you have learned from constructing this amazing business, which is scaled globally, to now thinking about how to help women entrepreneurs? Like, what are the things as you're beginning to map that? Because part of what's amazing about your journey is not just the, look, I decided I wanted to go start a business, didn't have an MBA, was going to do it. 
but I started it with a foundation in mind. I knew where I was going. I mean, one thing I don't want to underplay is just how difficult it was to build this business. And, you know, all of a sudden, sort of when people say, oh, you're such a success, and and we talked about there's no such thing as an overnight success, and that there has been so many pitfalls uh, along the way. And I think that preparing people when they go into business for that, and when you're an entrepreneur, things come at you morning, noon, and night, and you have to be again, back to being agile, but you have to be equipped to deal with that kind of turmoil. And and it is turmoil, but it's also incredibly gratifying. So when we think of how we're going to make the two play off of each other, now that we do feel that we have a lot to talk about externally, uh, it's still the, the beginnings of the conversation because it's interesting. A lot of our customers, a lot of people don't even know about our foundation yet. And that's something that I understand because we didn't message it externally for a very long time, but now we're ready. But also we, we're we coming from an authentic place. And I think that's really important. And that's something that's setting us apart. We're not just picking something to jump onto because now businesses with purposes are important. You have it all the way from your early discussions with investors. One of the things that I think is also really important with entrepreneurs is, is how to pick investors. Yes. So say a little bit more about what you've learned and how entrepreneurs looking at this can go, okay, here's how I navigate these waters. Okay, I've learned so much picking investors. <laughs> I also learned that when people say they're long-term, it generally is not the case. <laughs> and, and long-term really depends on how you look at it. I think when you look at some private equity groups or venture capital, it's all different. But long-term generally means five years, maybe seven. But that's not the cycle of a business when you think about long-term when you're making decisions for the health of the business. So I always go to integrity, and I feel I've been very fortunate picking incredible partners. Um, that said, it's it's hard, and it's not always easy, and you have to be able to be strong and have conflict on the board, but resolve it in a healthy way. And did, in picking them, was it, the, was it the which questions they ask you and the actual interaction? Was it reference checking? Was it reputation? What was the what was those set of signals for you? I think it was again going back to instinct and gut. When you meet someone, you have an immediate feeling, and definitely reputation for sure. But their track record comes into play. But I think we've picked incredible partners in in the private equity world. The number one question people would say to me: When are you going public? I mean, we're, our company is only 15 years old, and and it's a luxury to be private. So for as long as I'm there, that's going to hopefully be the case. I'd like to keep it private for a very long time. That's not always consistent with what investors want to hear. So there is... (laughs) (laughs) Would you invest? Uh, Yes. (laughs) Knowing that? (laughs) Yes. Yes. No, but I actually think the funniest thing is I've heard from uh, a VC, who I obviously won't name, was like, well, I I, uh, invest in companies to hold them forever. And whenever you hear that... (laughs) Forever is five years. Yes, exactly. Whenever you hear that, I'm selling. (laughs) Right? So... But, but the, the point is actually, in fact, how do you compound over very long time periods? Yeah, and, and so, you want your partners to do well also. Yes. That's another thing. Like, I do care about their investment. I don't want it to come across as that. Oh, no, no, of course. So last question. Advice for your younger self. If you could call your younger self through a phone line that goes through time as you were just oh, starting, what would you tell yourself to do differently? Like, do, some, do this, don't do this. What would be that advice? I would probably say to be more present. 
and really be in the moment and um, take it all in. I feel like the uh, the last 10, 15 years have been a bit of a blur, and I wish that weren't the case. It was just so busy and so crazy all of the time, as you know, that I wish I was more present. And How about it, you? What was? Um, <laughs> <laughs> Well, a number of my friends would say that I should follow your advice. <laughs> um, and, you know, there's, there's meditation, there's other things. Um, I think the thing that I would tell my younger self at the beginning of LinkedIn is to... There's always this dial in entrepreneurship about how much you pay attention to the competition and how much you don't. Mm. And I think in the first few years, I was dialed too much on paying attention. Like I was kind of going, okay, make sure that this changes. Make sure that like when I was watching their moves, I would have a strategy that was counter the move. And you do need to pay attention. But like, you know, we launched the group's product LinkedIn like 10 years too early. I mean, (laughs) (laughs) oops, right? And so uh, it took us a long time (laughs) to get around to making that product better. All right. So I think now as we close out the night, I want to bring out all of our guests and the whole creative team back to the stage. Come on up, guys. Special thank you to Tori, to the evening sponsor, Thought Exchange, to the amazing production team, and thank you for being such great beta testers. It's been our honor to share it with you. And good night. Hi, everyone. It's Jeff Berman, CEO of Wait What and co-host of the Masters of Scale podcast. Like many of you, my to-do list changes by the minute. Whether I'm working with partners or hashing out legal documents or brainstorming with our team, there is never a shortage of tasks that require attention and constant communication. Like Masters of Scale co-host Reid Hoffman, I know artificial intelligence is a huge part of our future. And Grammarly is an enterprising leader in AI. With Grammarly, what used to take a few hours only takes a few clicks. It's like having a collaborator for my writing, helping me generate better first drafts and tailoring messages to our specific audiences. It's not only a superior AI tool, it is a safe AI tool. And as a CEO, security is always top of mind. Grammarly has 14 years of experience and a business model that never sells our data. Security has been a priority since day one and continues to be integral to Grammarly's values today. Join me and over 70,000 teams who trust Grammarly to work faster, hit their goals, and keep their data secure. Visit Grammarly.com to learn more. That's Grammarly.com. Masters of Scale is a Wait What original. This episode was recorded live in Boston at the Wilbur Theater and produced at the studio inside SY Partners in New York. Our executive producers are June Cohen and Darren Triff. Produced by the entire team at Wait What, including Edmund Chang, John Goforth, Christina Gonzalez, Adam Heiner, Timothy Lou Lee, Chris McLeod, Jordan McLeod, Emily McManus, Jay Punjabi, Sarah Sandman, and Adam Skuse. Stage production by Kerry Kennedy, Todd Clark, Christopher Wren, Natalia Che, 
Tanya Zakharova. The production assistants were Madeline Triff and Max Triff. Mixing and mastering by Brian Pugh. Special thanks to Tori Birch and her team, Lahua Kamalu, Rana El Kaliubi, and Saida Sepieva. Visit mastersofscale.com to find the transcript for this episode. And be sure to subscribe to our email newsletter. <laughs>